Welcome to the Televerse, streaming in place. Very English, Scandal. Welcome back to Streaming in Place. I'm not Kate Kulnick. <laughs> <laughs> and now, this is going to be a television show only about lip syncs from RuPaul's Drag Race. Screw you guys. You handed over the keys and now I get to do whatever I want. Um, and what I would like to do is talk about season one, episode one of A Very English Scandal. Or, as I should probably call it, a very, 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 very English scandal. So, that's what we're going to do. It is actually, as we were just talking about before we started the podcast, it is actually season one, episode one, not just plain old episode one, because it was announced in 2019 with a writer attached earlier this year. That a very English scandal is getting a second season. It's getting anthologized, um, a British scandal storied, if you will. Um, and very good. That that was good. That was solid. Thank you. Thank you. So, and someday when um, when television is being made again, we may be able to return for another three episodes of people saying very, 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 very English scandal. Uh, I, as we mentioned yesterday, I'm in the unique position of being the only one who's seen this. I'm drunk with power. Uh, I feel so free. I feel so alive. I don't know how free you should feel, considering this is based on, like, actual events. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, totally. But I feel like in this conversation, I'm like, ha-ha, no, what did you think? Let me put you on the spot. You can respond first, and then you will say something, and then I will drink water for once. (laughs) Uh, But before we jump in um, to the very, very, very English scandal, we have a comment on Avatar. So let's do some last-minute Avatar business. Take it away, Ms. Kulzik. Um, so Ben from Tasmania left a comment on the website to say, thanks very much for covering Avatar. This rewatch reminded me why I love the show so much. The finale was better than I remembered, too. Zuko really failed upwards. I, sh- I ship Zutara more than any other TV or movie couple, probably because the writers were so clueless about it. I can't wait to rewatch Korra. I'm sure I missed a lot the first time, even with Noel's excellent reviews. I won't oh, watch along hey. with a very English scandal because it feels too soon, but I will listen. So. Someone read those. Thanks, Ben. Hey, you know, the- <laughs> we had to. St- I feel like we had to stop doing them at TV.com because no one was reading them. But I don't remember. It was so long ago. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we've got the the chat is riled here. Uh, Marcus says no, 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 no Zutara. <laughs> <laughs> so apparently, do we? And maybe we need to take sides on that. I am, of course, I ship it. Though the correct ship, the OTP is, is Zuko and May. As long as they're both happy with it. But, but I mean, like, way better than... I think... Can we all at least agree that Zutara is better than Katara and Aang? Can we, like, agree on that? Yes. But I that's how I feel. But yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Am I allowed to ship... Let, what would it be? Tafara? Yes. No. That is the, that is yeah. the actual, like, god choice. That is the universe brain choice. Okay. Um... Yeah, that's the universe brain choice. I was about to say, it's shipping. There's no way to do it wrong. And then I remembered my dad shipping Iroh and Katara, and there is a way to do it wrong. So Yes, there is. A, you can ship incorrectly. <laughs> uh, it is correct. Anybody who ships you is shipping incorrectly, as yeah. an example. Yeah. Um, uh, there's also, it must be said, 
nothing to ship in a very English scandal. Mm-hmm. So, um, unless am I wrong? Is anybody sh- is anybody shipping Jeremy Thorpe and Norman Joseph? No, terrible. No, just it's, terrible. It's, you you mean Jeremy and his little bunny rabbit? Bunny, uh, bunny, uh, bunny, bunnies go to France. Um, well, hey, it's me, the person who doesn't have to answer first for once. So, <laughs> Kate Kulzik, what are your thoughts on season one, episode one of A Very English Scandal? It's it's right off the bat, very very good, very well done, and the way I, you can tell. Um, is that despite some admittedly clunky dialogue early on, like that opening scene is like, I don't buy how abrupt we're being in this, like this, like about our, about our, these characters' sexualities, like, oh, we just need to catch the audience up, right? This is like a thing that would have been more subtly built to over time, knowing everything. Despite that, I was immediately uh, interested and also so grossed out. Thorpe is terrible while also having like, I'd like that they include the politics of like, yeah, and he's liberal and you're going to agree with his politics. And it doesn't change the fact that he's so gross. That whole, like, we're going to talk about, I'm sure a lot of things about this. I will have a Kate's classical corner. If y'all are interested about the violin. Oh yes. No, my notes are highlighted with ask Kate about the violin playing. Oh yeah. (laughs) I was, I, I did the, the Amazon version of the Netflix party to watch this with our pal Keenan last night. And when we got to that scene, we were both like, Kate gets to talk about fake violin playing. I can't wait. <laughs> so it's going to be a real highlight. So yes, Kate's classical corner. Well, well, um, well, yeah. Talk about, we can talk about that. But uh, the the thing that immediately stood out to me more than that was the decision to have no scoring in the, in our scene of, I don't, I can't even say seduction because it's not seduction. It's just, okay, we're going to have sex now. Coercion. Yeah. Yeah. It's so creepy. And that's where the bunny thing comes in. And it's just gross and terrible. And uh, the, I applaud both the actors for really committing to how terrible and gross that scene is. Uh, The performances are excellent. So I'm very, I mean, I know a bit about the history, but I'm very intrigued to watch the rest based on, the choices in this first episode. So as Keenan says, it was admittedly an abrupt tonal shift from Avatar to Scandal. <laughs> yes. And not even that scandal. English scandal. Right. Um, we should have done that. We should have just done Scandal now come to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we'd all be eating popcorn and drinking large glasses of wine, which I assume is what we're all doing anyway. Yeah, I was about to say, aren't we supposed to be doing that? That's what the governor told us to do. It's the quarantine <laughs> diet. Yeah, it's quarantine diet. But but yeah, it's it's just it's really it's very good, and I'm glad it's three episodes. <laughs> I I think that that is that's wise. It's the length that you wish The Handmaid's Tale had been. Jeez, oh, um, you're right. I'm sorry. I'm not writing about it anymore. Um, every once in a while, I'm just I can't resist. I just got to do a little like I'm free. I'm free. Handmaid's Tale dunk. Um, great, Noel. What are your thoughts on this very first episode? So I'm in a weird position in that I historically kind of know a fair bit about this. um, And I know a fair bit about Thorpe um, in terms of what what this first episode kind of does in terms of setting him up and doing a lot of like the legwork of like 
he was the rising star of the Liberal Party, which had been in the wilderness um, for a very long time up to like this point. Um, so and that he was poised to basically become prime minister right before all this happened. Um, like he was on track for that. So I was I'm aware of him as this sort of like fallen figure almost within um, British politics um, or English politics, I suppose. Um, so I knew about this and I knew a little bit about just the fact that after all of this and after the trial and everything, he basically just faded into obscurity. Um, so I'm familiar with the arc of what this is going to do. So I'm interested in seeing it dramatized instead and the tone that they go for with it as well. Um, so like I knew Stephen Frears was directing this, uh, which explains a lot. Um, I was unaware of that and please correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like this is correct. Russell T Davies is writing this season. Which also explains a lot, mm-hmm. um, just tonally, especially in the early going. Um, it's just like, right, this this feels camp, but not quite camp. But it's there. There are elements of it where I'm just like, this is this is a lot of coded language about mounting and saddles. Um, thanks, Russell. Um, so I do, but I also agree with Kate that there's a lot of like exposition driven stuff across this episode to basically catch up folks who are not aware who Jeremy Thorpe is, which is very, which is totally forgivable for not knowing who he is. Um, so a lot of that I think feels very TV. Um, like I agree with Kate that like this open discussion in this dining room kind of makes sense in the regards of the fact that I feel like they would just feel comfortable enough to discuss this because it's assumed no one's listening because everyone else is absorbed in their own conversations. But it also just feels so driven by exposition to like lay the groundwork for everything else that it feels a little clunky. But at the same time, you get to that end point of, well, we're going to have to kill him. And the weird sense of how all of that balances out with everything else, I think generally works pretty well. So I'm very much on board and I'm eager to discuss um, this episode and everything else. So I'm intrigued. I like the tonal stuff. I like the decision to cast Hugh Grant as Thorpe, um, trading really heavily on a star image of charisma and then just vile ickiness, um, which everyone just also go watch Paddington too, because it's a masterpiece. Um, so yeah, that's, so, that's not an exaggeration. Noel's it's correct. Not. It's, it's no. a masterpiece. It's one of the best children's films ever made. I weep every time I watch it. Both of them actually are very good. Oh, I love um, the first one, but the second one is like, yeah, it is <sighs> just amazingly good. So that whole thing coupled with, um, with Shaw's, um, just ability to play what comes off as manipulative, but also deeply vulnerable at the same time type of stuff. Um, works really, really well for me here too. So I'm, I'm really intrigued to watch the overall arc of everything and how it plays out. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm really interested by that, um, by that first scene and something that Marcus mentions in the comments here, which is it almost doesn't make sense given Bessel saying Norman was very brave, given how yeah. open he was discussing it. Because it, what it reminds me of, and that's one of the things that I really, and I want to come, don't let me forget, I want to come back to you talking about Hugh Grant's casting because I think it's inc- just inspired. But um, there's a line in Angels in America, and I don't remember whether it's in part one or part two, um, 
where Roy Cohn is talking about um, how he can't possibly have AIDS. And it's not that he can't possibly have AIDS because he can't, he's never been in a situation where he would have contracted it. It's because AIDS is a disease to him. And I'm paraphrasing the play. This obviously is not my opinion. Roy Cohn is a monster um, that AIDS is a disease that homosexuals get. And he is not a homosexual. He is a a man who other men because he is powerful and homosexuals are not powerful because he is connected and strong and not weak. And I feel like there's a, a similar um, but very British take on that here where these men consider themselves untouchable. So they're not queer. That's a good point. Yeah. They're heterosexual men who also have sex with men. That whole 80-20 thing. Yes, the 80-20 thing. Or that and the contrast being that really incredible scene that we get um with Mr. Collins. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um with David Bamber who plays um who's one of the great standout fool performances in all Austin adaptations. Um here gets a really heartrending scene talking about um how his brother didn't die by suicide. His brother died by the laws of the country and um just incredible. Uh and here you watch them think about that legislation and what it could do for people who are not them because it doesn't apply to them because they're not, they do not consider particularly Thorpe the way that he's written does not associate at all with the community. Um, which I think is a really interesting, distressing point of tension. Kate, what do you think about the casting? It is really good. And like, I'm going to bring up again, but having seen Paddington comparatively recently, like in the last year, um, as, and I haven't seen one still, but I've seen two. I sat, because I, we were looking for something to watch. Um, and as I've mentioned, when I try to watch something, if I try to watch something with my parents, it can be a very challenging, like, Venn diagram to find something that we, that we all like. Um, and they were like, why? Why, Paddington? Why would you? And I was like, it says 100% fresh. And they're like, and then like you know my mom liked it my dad loved it i loved it um it's it's amazing go go seek it out uh and also the reason i'm bringing it up is because it's so weird (laughs) to have those two because because for those who don't know wisha who is the the lead or the i guess the second lead here voices paddington and so i had to get over that in my head (laughs) little teddy bears go to france (laughs) Okay. <laughs> oh, no. No. Why would you do that? I've been I've been asked to leave, so uh you all have yeah. a good rest of the podcast. I'll see you I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> uh well Noel makes his exit. Let, let's catch up on the the chat really quick here because then we can get back to the casting. Um but Keen says the balance of camp and horror is really good. Every time it cut to Thorpe giving a speech in Parliament, I was floored because they were really admirable and compelling, and then he was just ew. Um, she also says Ben Wishaw is a marvel. Uh, like if you're in, uh, I think it makes sense considering class structures. Like if you're in uh, the parliamentary dining room discussing something with someone you went to a heinous English boarding school with, heinous in all caps, you're safe. Norman's talking about it at parties. Um, and then she says, no, no, leave. Disgraceful. Um, so yeah, so it is disconcerting to listen to the voice of Paddington, um, having these conversations with the villain from Paddington too. Yeah. Well, 
I guess it's a spoiler. You find out pretty quick in the movie. Yeah. Um, they don't but, hide yeah. it in the trailers, so I feel like it's yeah. safe. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, so, so once I got through that part of it, obviously I know they're incredibly talented actors. The whole cast is is just a who's who of people you enjoy. Um, I mean, Bamber, obviously. Uh, it's just so awesome to because he is so known by a lot of people not just me as Collins. So it's always, I always appreciate when he gets to do other, like other character work and other, other really interesting and very different characters. Yes. He can do Collins in his sleep, but he can, he's also, like you said, Elson, really great here. Um, going, you know, this is part of what makes Grant such a, a really compelling and interesting star. His awareness of his star image um, has been something that he has, played with uh, to tremendous effect for decades now. And it speaks to his, um, to his craft and his curiosity that he is like, Oh yeah, let's absolutely do this. I'm not worried about, you know, how this will affect my star image. Cause he knows he's, it'll, as long as it's really good, it'll just add to everything he's done. Um, and to, you know, this is also an actor who has a very good sense of humor about himself. And, uh, you know, he he was asked relatively recently, what do you think is the best and greatest movie you've ever made? And he said Paddington 2. And he's right. Uh, and so, like, to have that awareness of yourself and how you can, like, utilize your star persona to enhance the context of a movie shows a lot of self-awareness. Um, and, and he's playing into that. You can see, like, you know, like Keenan said, when he's in Parliament, He's ter- he's turned on that it factor, right? Like Marilyn Monroe used to talk about how she would be Norma Jean and then she could just like turn it on and become Marilyn halfway through walking down the street and go from nobody noticing her to everyone noticing her. So he, within his performance, Grant is playing with that. And, uh, but it's also something that the, the writing and the direction really takes advantage of as well. I, I really appreciate that aspect of it. It's also a little unusual watching it as someone who's been, very aware of Ben Wishaw since like the hours and before to see him cast as like the, the nobody um, or is what he's supposed to be at first. And he's just, he's not. <laughs> um, so uh, I appreciate it about halfway through the episode when he, all of a sudden he's now he's a model and he's had some success with other stuff. Um, and that doesn't last, but I was like, okay, good. We're not pretending that he's not very charismatic and compelling. Good. Let's now we can continue. Yeah, let's talk about that modeling montage a second, because I think that's a great example of one of the really um, pronounced strengths of this episode, which is that it just moves. Like, you watch that first scene, and you watch the last scene, and it is sort of impossible to conceive that we get from very, very, very to, well, we have to kill him over the course of an hour, given everything that happens. I mean, this is many, many years are being covered. Um, and I think the modeling montage is a great, particularly great example, just in that it takes us from him just shopping in a store to the end of his modeling career in what feels like 90 seconds. How how did y'all react to that? I actually really like the, that that whole like sequence actually, because I think one of the other strengths of that sequence, um, in addition to 
showing the rise and fall of Norman as a model within Dublin is that it's juxtaposed, again, with a heavy emphasis on photography, with Thorpe attempting to ascend British politics at the same time. Um, so you get a lot of photography of him by the press as opposed to by, like, a fashion magazine or whatever the magazine type of magazine it was that was shooting him, shooting Norman in Dublin. So you get a dual rise and then a complete collapse for Norman instead of a complete rise for um, Jeremy, for Thorpe. Um, and the ways in which that gets juxtaposed against each other, I think, is really, really efficient. And then it climaxes really well with Norman calling the cottage, basically, and having to talk to Caroline? Caroline, yeah. Um, about everything that's going on and that goddamn national insurance card. Just, mm-hmm. I just need an insurance card. Um, and the ways in which that also works as a class signifier really heavily as well. Um, I think all of that baked in and that sequence, like you say, Allison, moves us through all these years really well and really efficiently, but also with a great deal of entertaining without feeling like we're losing a sense of who these characters are. In fact, we're getting a very clear sense of who they are. And I really, mm-hmm. really like it. Yeah, it's really, uh, it's really efficient. And but it, it really captures and really sells the energy of Norman's experience at this time and his personality. I think uh, that's it's really good performance and editing and uh, the just what they include and how much and it's really well put together. The 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 politics of this of this movie are entertaining and really they're very clear about it, about where they stand. It's like just if you just got him his insurance card, if you could just get his meds, both of your lives would have taken a completely different direction. And of course, being in the United States, can't help but be like, so this is the story about how not having, being able to have access to state support and like, this is what happens when one person can't get their meds. Imagine a whole country of people who can't get their meds. How about that? That is how ridiculous. <laughs> Anyways, um, Marcus says it's gender reversing the role of the girl who, who doesn't know that she's beautiful um, with, with Norman. I think that's interesting. If I had one question mark about this episode, it's I don't know that the writers, or, and I mean, I'm sure the performers know what they, what they think about it, but I don't know that the writers know how they feel about Norman and how active how much agency he has in what happens at certainly at the beginning of the story. It's very clear how they feel and how we're supposed to feel about Thorpe like throughout in some of its nuanced and some of it's not, but it's very clear with, with Norman. I am not, I mean, even the fact that I keep calling him Thorpe and I keep calling him Norman. Right. Um, but with Norman, I, it's so like, it's so by the number, by the numbers of like, oh, I couldn't imagine what I could possibly do. I, I've always relied on the kindness of strangers, but it, it, like the dialogue, but then the performance is, I think they're going for guileless, but you don't, I don't, you don't get to see him on his own. So you don't really get to know if this is an act or not. I would have liked a stronger sense of, of, of Norman, of who he is and what he's experiencing Cause I feel a little bit like they're trying to like they're trying to play into familiar beats and familiar like touch pads of this kind of like plucked from obscurity, screwed over lover, you know, that, that we've seen in the, in scandal kind of narratives before without 
ascribing in enough agency to Norman in that. So I, I kind of wanted them to either go either way, like either he has, he knows a bit of what he's doing, even if he doesn't really understand the whole, like see the path of where this is going to lead. Um, or he doesn't, and we're not going to play into these beats in the, in the same way. I don't know. How did, how did you feel about that guys? That's sort of like a little bit of sticking point for me, because I do think that there's an element of guilelessness, um, guilelessness to him, um, to Norman. But at the same time, his whole conversation in the taxi with um, uh, Bessel um, reeks of, I know what I'm doing. Until he goes, I lost everything in my valise in Switzerland. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, it, again, it becomes an issue of for me of how much of this is, how much of this is like consistent characterization in terms of he's on his meds, he's that degree of stable as a result of that, um, or how much of this is plotted out. Um, Because I don't feel like anything that of the sequences where he's struggling either with alcohol abuse or drug abuse um, are, whatchamacallit, are not legitimate. So like that call that he makes to Caroline feels deeply legitimate. Um, mm-hmm. and not a, not a con. Um, so th- that is, that I kind of struggle with a little bit in terms of the kinds of power plays that kind of happen here. Um, Allison, do you want to take a long sip of water? Um, in terms of like whether we're on a track or anything? <laughs> Cause now you get to take sips of water. Yeah. Um, I am gonna, I'm gonna withhold comment on, on what might be going on with Norman Joseph, AKA Norman Scott. Um, I will say that one of the things that I admire about the handling of that character in this episode, and this is, it's enhanced by Wishaw's performance, which he won an Emmy for, um, and a bunch of other awards, um, but is really present in the writing is that it's another example, um, in a, a very welcome trend in the last couple of years of TV where we've stopped requiring that victims be perfect. Um, you know, like, like we are meant to hear him talk about how he goes by Norman Scott because he's convinced that he's actually part of the gentry, um, or that he could very well be royalty. Uh, and we're not meant to think that that is, rational right that is it's a delusional um and again all of this would be better if he just had his national insurance card but you you see um you know ego and you see manipulation and you see him doing some things that are a little bit toxic none of that means that he deserves to be treated the way that he's treated um so i'm really glad it's there are lots of examples of this recently but i'm really glad to see it every time i see it i'm like oh good thank god we're not just making all victims angelic anymore this is wonderful before we sign off, I feel like there are two things that we have to talk about quick. I want to briefly touch on Alex Jennings' performance because I think it's also really important. Uh, Noel already mentioned the scene between Bissell and Norman in the back of the cab on the way to the airport in Dublin, which I think we should talk about. Also, um, some of his later scenes with Hugh Grant, I think, are great. And then, obviously, we need a little Kate's Classical Corner. So... Um, so Alex Jennings, how do you, how do y'all feel about him as an actor in general? He shows up in projects like this a lot. Um, and also this performance specifically. Yeah, he's really terrific. And um, again, just 
just the right level of knowing and smarm. And then at the end, when he's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, totally right. But but really, what are we gonna do? Um, you are. I think you. I think he's the one that you're most with, you know, as the audience, uh, which is interesting and not necessarily what you'd expect or what I would have expected. Um, and he's he's just really fun. He's just really. It's like so many of these performances are just really fun. Yeah, I I agree. I really like Jennings a lot. Um, in general, like he's fa- he's fantastic. Um, and I think for me what Kate just said is correct. He Bessel performs as a really solid audience surrogate in this situation of, in a weird way of being that the person to whom a lot of exposition is given, um, but also being the one that goes, but just do the thing. Oh, you're joking about killing him, right? No. It's just like, oh, no, we can't do this. But again, it falls into that trap of, not not a trap trap, but into that trap of he's kind of overwhelmed by Thorpe's charisma in the same way like we're supposed to be overwhelmed by Hugh Grant's charisma. Um, and how all of that gets baked into this, I think is really, again, really, really effective in the ways that they then carry that into Bessel's character and the ways in which Jennings makes that kind of clear into how he portrays Bessel, I think works really, really well. So his whole, like, insistence on JT, 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 for the love of God, you say his name again, I will slap you, type of thing is just so delightfully good because he's clearly out of his depths in terms of this didn't go the way it was planned and I don't know what to do next. Um, But at the same time, trying to... And some modicum of cover for his colleague and friend. It's unclear the degrees to which that these two, that Thorpe and um, Bessel, like communicate with each other outside of the office, which I think is delightful. Um, that it just, it's, it's still really, it feeds into that comedy of errors type of deal that is really rife throughout a lot of this episode. So I, I, yeah, it's great. Um, the one thing I do want to mention before we go to Kate's classical corners real quick is the presence of Jason Watkins, who here has like no lines basically, but plays Husan, the competing liberal party member who was going against uh, Thorpe within the party for the leadership. Um, and I just want to shout it out because he plays the prime minister in the crown. He plays, um, Harold Mm -hmm. Wilson, who they opened the episode by mocking. Um, (laughs) and I was just like, oh, this is just completely, I feel like this is very unintentional, but I love it so much on an intertextual level of, uh, Watkins being here for this. And then them opening with a Harold Wilson joke. Just like... (laughs) This is very good because Watkins was my favorite thing about that season of The Crown. Yeah, he's so good. Um, so I was just like, oh, you're here for, you're going to, I know you're important later. Like historically speaking, you're important later. So I'm eager to see what you do because you also don't cast this guy to not be important. Um, so I was just really delighted that he was there and just all of that. I was just like, this is very cool. Anyway, Kate's Classical Corner. I want to hear about fake violin playing. <laughs> Really quick, I it's funny that you say that, Noel, because what that most reminds me of um, is when you read Bridget Jones' diary and you get to the section where a character is making jokes about Hugh Grant and then that character is played by Hugh Grant in the movie. Yes. It's the same kind of yes. synchronicity. So anyway, Kate's Classical Corner. 
Um, okay, so apparently uh, Thorpe was actually a really proficient violinist, amateur violinist, and he played a bunch when he was a kid. Um, the piece that he plays uh, with his mom is the Horus Staccato by Grigoras Diniku. I'm pretty sure I pronounced his name wrong. Sorry, guys. Um, but yeah, apparently it's the Horus Staccato. Um, I was watching it going like, wait, can, can Hugh Grant play the violin? Because like, and the, uh, it does because he because it looked really good, and then I'd be like, wait, no, no, that's not right. Oh, but that okay. So, I'm so confused. So, uh, because his posture and some of the things he was doing looked really accurate, looked really good, certainly much better than you usually see on on TV, and it was a really challenging piece. It's like a show piece. It's one of those pieces that you play after the concert's over. It's like an encore, right? And people love it. It's really flashy, kind of a thing. Um. And there was, I was like, there is too much that is accurate for him to not know anything about the violin, but there's not enough that is accurate <laughs> for him to actually be playing it. Obviously, it's a different recording. They got like Heifetz or somebody to do the record, to use the, that recording for it, for the audio. But um, then I, so I Googled it and there was a piece about it at Class FM. And <laughs> so he took months of lessons for that little scene. And they were working, and they knew the they knew what the piece was clearly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so th- they knew what they were going to have him play, and they could get the rights to it and everything. Um, so so he worked with the teacher for for months. Uh, there's a quote from Hugh Grant. Um, he says, "I tried, God knows, I tried for months, but the violin <laughs> is completely impossible, as it turns out." Uh, he, he, the the piece uh, is a sort of virtuoso piece. I said to my violin teacher, "How long would you have normally been playing before you take this on?" And he said, "About ten to twelve years." So I did my best, and then my children broke two violins. So yeah, good editing <laughs> is what Hugh Grant said, uh, which I thought was absolutely delightful. But yeah, you can tell like from like he's doing like the upo staccato where you go like up 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 up, and um, I was like, because and, and he was on the right strings and things looked right, and, and the, so when it turns out no, we. They specifically worked with him. He had a teacher. He worked on it for months just on this piece. And probably they even knew which part of the piece they were going to do. So he didn't have to learn the whole thing. He just could spend months just working on a, like 30 seconds. Um, that tracks. that, And clearly he did really take it seriously and, and go for it. Because because he, he does a really good job faking it. And they edited it well. And they, I'm sure there were plenty of takes that looked terrible. But no, they, they did a good job. I always appreciate when um, when actors talk, like, who actually, you know, for whatever reason, need to play violin. Another one that comes to mind is Russell Crowe um, for Master and Commander, who took months and months of lessons for that scene where they play. I think it's Pirelli, maybe, they play? Yeah. Um, and uh, and he, they, so he got asked about it. He's like, that's literally the hardest thing I've done in my entire life. <laughs> is child play the violin. It's so much harder than anything else I've ever done. Um, because it's really, really hard, especially to play at a level that sounds any good. Uh, the first like couple years uh, of students starting the violin, it's just, just like, you have to talk to the parents. You just go like, here's the thing. It's going to sound bad. Don't tell them this, but it's going to sound bad for like at least a year, probably more. And you just got to like power through because that's what it takes to like learn the basics enough that then you can get good. But if you don't sound bad for a year and stick with it, you're probably never going to get good. So, um, so yeah, tip of the hat to, uh, to Hugh Grant, good uh, on you, Hugh Grant. for doing the work. Uh, yeah, I, it was, it was definitely the best fake violin playing I've seen in quite a while uh, in a movie or TV show. Um, before we go entirely, if anybody else has comments, if you want to throw those in the chat, um, I, I, I 
I feel like we can't ask Noel for predictions because he knows um, because of history. Yeah, sorry. Uh, so, so Kate, if you want to predict something, you can go ahead, and then maybe y'all could just tell me your favorite costume. Because the other thing to love about this show is the incredible costuming, um, and I have a suspicion about what Noel's might be based on his name. But uh, mm-hmm. first, Kate, do you want to predict anything? Uh, well, I do know a bit about the history uh, of what, what actually happens, uh, so I will defer in case people listening don't okay. know anything about cool. it. Uh, but just to say that, like, knowing that it's a true story is really helping as you're watching through this. You're like, this is ridiculous, but it actually is pretty accurate to history. So, like, it's going to get more ridiculous before it gets less, is what I'll say. Um, and for costumes, there's a lot of really great ones. Um, I, I'm going to go with the uh, the coat in the the modeling sequence with the lining out, with the lining i'll go with that one that's a good yeah. one no mine is ben wishaw's wet let's put a sweater on him and it's like <laughs> um, lord yeah no it's just like it's it's real good um but um, all of diana's clothes and i just feel like that she's just going to, does she come back please tell me she comes back you know, I don't remember. Oh, I don't God. think so, I don't, but I don't remember. I just, I love her so much and her whole deal of like, no, I, and the entire concept of, oh, if anyone can find this, it's her. And then she finds it and then is like, nope, I can handle this. And it's just like, no, 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 it's fine. It's fine. Everything's fine. Don't listen to anything. It's just like, <laughs> you've made an enemy, Diana. Uh, sorry, Jeremy. You've made an enemy. <laughs> you don't want to have Diana as your you enemy. Don't. You can tell. You can tell. She found a Man. suitcase in Switzerland. <laughs> She's like ten minutes away from being recruited by MI6. Like just that whole thing with the complaint getting shuffled up to MI5 and then just put in a safe was so good. It's yep. just very good. <laughs> so good. All right. Well, uh, Keenan adds that one lady's eyeliner was my favorite costume. That's Diana. I loved her. She is my queen. Uh, and I think that's a great note to end on. We will be back tomorrow to talk about a very English scandal episode two. Um, and, uh, and we'll see how Pedro, Pedro, Pedro <laughs> right. uh, manages that revelation from Mr. Jeremy Thorpe. That'll do it. Bye. Bye. Bye.